0: You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however, you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Ashley Hardgrave. Alright, this week we go inside the huddle with soprano Amanda Majeski. The tap-dancing Mozart and Strauss diva hails from Gurney, Illinois and now lives in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Listeners, you will be shocked, shocked I tell you, when you find out where her sports allegiance lies. Plus, in the two-minute drill, where are all the gay white male opera administrators going? Are they starting their own super opera company in P-Town? (laughs) Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes. Mailbag at operaboxscore.com. That's a new email right there. Or just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say page on our website, operaboxscore.com. However, you contribute, you'll get an OBS beer coaster, an OBS lapel pin, and an all new number one OBS fan foam finger just for sharing your own hot take. Oliver, I've got my eyes on that foam finger. How about you? That's a lot of
1: F's in that phrase there, the the foam (laughs) finger for the fans. Um, I don't know. We love alliteration.
0: That's some some
1: Wagnerian alliteration right there. Yeah, I, I think that the headline that we sort of buried is that we have a new website. We talked about it last week, but it really is brand sticking new. And we're finally so not cute. we're not ashamed to send people
2: to <laughs> LB,
0: upperboxcore.com. Well, at least no more uh, shame than we should be. Ashley Hardgrave, what is your opinion on foam fingers?
3: I am always a fan of the foam finger. How's that for alliteration? <laughs> um, but I should tell our listeners, we are recording very late on a Sunday evening. I have spent the majority of today watching nfl games i started at noon i started with the bears game as disappointing as it was at noon and then continued to watch football games all nfl all afternoon and then i went to not quite the premiere but an opening of a new musical and i'm not sure i've ever had a more me day in like months so lots of football some musical theater let's go
1: huddle up Let's go inside the huddle. Well, if you're listening to the pod while it's still steaming like fresh poop in the snow, you have a chance to catch Amanda Majeski's recital with pianist Milos Rapitsky at Opera Philadelphia's Curtis Voices series. Just one of the offerings of Festival O23, which kicks off this week. As Ashley said, we are recording late on a Sunday night so that I can get on a plane tomorrow morning to Philadelphia I'm trying to beat the crowds by arriving four days early like it's a Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> Amanda Majeski has established herself as a celebrated interpreter of Mozart, Strauss, Wagner, and Handel. In addition to starring as the Countess in the Richard Eyer production of Marriage of Figaro, which was broadcast in HD, another high-profile performance, the title role in Janáček's Katja Kabanova* at Royal Opera Covent Garden, won Best New Opera Production at the 2019 Olivier Awards. My relationship with Amanda Majeski began when I heard her sing at Chicago Opera Theater in the, um, Christopher Alden production of Clemenza di Tito, mm. right before she began her, um, apprenticeship at the Ryan Opera Center at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Let's hear a little bit of Amanda Majeski singing Vitellia from Opera Paris. Can- Just a little bit of the first act aria of Vitellia from Mozart's Clemenza di Tito, a performance from the Paris Opera featuring our guest today on Opera Box score, Amanda Majeski. Welcome to OBS.
4: Hello. It's so nice <laughs> to be with you all. Thank you for having me this morning.
1: Oh my gosh. I've been wanting to talk to you for how long now? 14 years. <laughs> and I finally get to do it. So, I'll just, to give the audience a little bit of context, you were in Chicago uh, to do the Ryan Opera Center program. I'm not sure if that coincided with Chicago Opera Theater casting you as Vitelli. Was that before or afterwards?
4: So I believe the uh, Clemenza di Tito was first, Mm -hmm. I believe somewhere in March. And then my Ryan Opera Center contract started just a few weeks after that. Okay. So um, the two did not, go together per se but they came together
1: that's that's one of those reasons why i think i was so confused like did they know that she was doing this and they already they already released her (laughs) to do this (laughs) so that was the christopher alden production uh under the brian dickey regime of chicago opera theater and the amazing jane glover i mean so many great components coming together to make that i think my favorite clemenza i've ever seen and you had a lot to do with that Mm -hmm. Um, just, I mean, the singing we can talk about in a little bit. Um, but to me, it is your body that made that so weird, so deliciously weird. I mean, you were bending yourself into these weird angles and you look like one of those like, um, Beaux-Arts paintings or like Egon Shyla. like, I don't know what you studied or what you did to make yourself so sinister, snaky, you know, um, I don't even know how to describe it. And I don't know if you could still do it. I don't know. This is what 14 years later, do you still have that flexibility?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, uh, Oliver, I come from dance training and dance was my first artistic love. Um, so, you know, from a very young age, I'm 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 talking four or five years old. Uh, I was in I was in dance classes and connecting with music that way, and particularly took uh, a love for tap dancing and uh, have used that with various opera companies who have asked for it <laughs> over the years. Tap dancing, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know that has not come up. Uh, we'll see. You know, time will tell. But uh, you know, I've I've always first connected with music through bodily movement that's just kind of with within me and so when I connect with a director for whom eccentric music uh movement or and and you know character can be revealed through the movement of the body it's it's really thrilling for me so I remember um, Christopher Alden talking about this character, and we used the analogy of Reese Witherspoon in Election. I don't know if you ever knew that. Oh. <laughs> yes, <I will. laughs> just very tightly wound, very pent up, and and Chris Alden would kind of showcase kind of how he wanted the body to look, and then I just always lean hard into my dance training and mm. uh, kind of take take what the director has as an idea connect it with the music uh, and and formulate something that makes sense and hopefully reads, uh, you know, to to the audience. I'm so glad that that did for you. That's wonderful.
1: Uh, it was amazing. And this was a time in my personal career where I was trying to start an opera company and was looking for people who just had an, an extra skill that they brought to the table. Mm-hmm. And I felt like you could have done that role without singing and it would have still read because it was oh. so... Physically dramatic.
4: No, well, and and you know, I think you asked the other question of, can I still do that? <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm older now than I was in 2009, but I think I think that's our duty as artists, right? Our our instrument is housed within our body, so how we how we use our body to express character and express text and 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 tell the story is part of our duty.
1: Since then, uh, you have gone on to sing the major Mozart and Strauss heroines. And you even got a chance to sing Vitellia uh, at Lyric Opera of Chicago. And I don't know if that's a Pinell production, but it feels like a Pinell production. It's just like very like columns and, you know, um, goddess gowns and stuff like that. And a very kind of more uh, classic version of that uh, opera. Uh, but you also got to sing at a very high profile Marriage of Figaro uh, the, um, Downton Abbey, <laughs> marriage of Figaro I forget who was the, the director for the Are, for are our...
4: you speaking of, of the Mets figure? Yes. That's Richard, uh, Richard Eyer.
1: Richard Iyer. Yeah. Um, so you're, you became sort of like this, uh, Mozart and Strauss girl. Um, and I'd love to talk to you about those operas specifically, but do you have an idea how at your, at the early stage of your career, you already began to align with these composers who I think are asking for very specific things from singers, like a temperamental quality and a technical quality?
4: Well, you know, I think this uh, Mozart-Strauss label was, to be honest, mostly defined by the industry, because that's what I was hired to do. (laughs) Um, I I was very lucky that that I like Mozart and I like Strauss and I, my voice seemed to, um, to make sense in those pieces. And of course I, I, Mozart is a, is a, such a challenge um, vocally. It's, and it's thrilling because every time you, you revisit it, there's something new, you know, you are new as a, as a singer approaching that piece. And then there's always something to, redefine or refine or look at in a new way depending on who else joins you in the room in that experience. Um and I've always kind of referred to to Strauss as the dessert, you know, you use similar skills that that you use in in Mozart because there's this demand for these, you know, big long sweeping legato lines in which you express most deeply through through the entirety of it. Um, But the orchestration under Strauss is so different, um, so it's kind of like taking taking um, the reins away, so to speak, and and flying on top of the orchestra. When when Strauss is really working well, it's an exhilarating feeling because it just it feels like you're being carried by that orchestra. Um, as long as you allow your breath to release underneath you, you know that's uh, that's the key to that uh, to that experience. But you know, I think. I think more broadly, I think we need to be careful um, in in our industry about how we label or how we how we box singers in. Um I think those days are kind of over, you know. Mm. I think I think uh, you know, I think we can challenge our audiences and our lovers of opera to resist putting a singer in a particular box. Oh, they sing Mozart and 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 Strauss and allow that singer the opportunity to sing what works for them in the moment you know what makes sense for them as a as a human as an artistic being in the moment as we grow and change and evolve throughout our life and throughout our artistic life you know um so while i feel very proud to to have had the opportunity to Luxuriate in in Mozart and Strauss roles. I'm I'm also eager to explore other facets and other sides to my artistic being. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed singing Katya Kabanova so much. A beautiful Ionechek role that that uh, uh, is an incredibly fascinating dramatic character and. And does call for that kind of intense body work that I love so much, you know, on stage. And so I think, I think it's exciting um, when we look at art and artistry and the possibilities of that a little bit more broadly.
1: Well, I think we're used to seeing uh, singers of your ilk make the transition from Strauss to Janicek. I think because both of these composers are very text-driven. Uh, I want to put a pin in that. And I just want to go back to something you said about. Um, Mozart and Strauss having similarly long lines. Somehow I feel that Mozart, even though he's always testing his singers, he really understood the human voice and he knew what was possible. And even though some of these lines are ridiculous, uh, they are they are like the usually the length of a human breath. They may be a, huper, a superhuman human breath, but they make sense and that they he doesn't ask for the most important. Uh, the climax of the phrase to be at the very end of the phrase. He puts the climax at like the two thirds point or even at the halfway point. So you still have breath to make it to the end.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas Strauss, I feel like he his phrase lengths are unusual because he just drops whole notes in like wherever he feels like it. And you suddenly find yourself at the end of a phrase like singing just one more whole note. And uh, there's something you have to do. And like you do it, so I can't explain it. But the great Strauss singers do it. You know, Gundula Janowitz, Lucia Pop, Elizabeth Soderstrom, even Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. We don't really talk about mm-hmm. her that much on this show. But it's something about the way you negotiate with overtones, so that as the orchestra is like filling in or changing harmonies or swooping underneath you, you're just hanging on and you are making your voice more pointed by by just... The like the way you place it or something. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but it's something you do very well, and I wish I could like get a recording of it and play it back to see that's what you did it right there. And that.
2: that.
4: (laughs) Well, I appreciate that, Albert. You know, I think it's all about the breath. To be perfectly honest, Um, for me, it's it's trusting that kind of um, deep, low, open, relaxed, released breath, so that you can vary the speed. And the depth of the breath as you as you persist through the phrase, um, you know, if you ask a different singer, maybe they would they would think of it a little bit differently. But I think the the overtones that you speak of um, that uh, you know create that that beautiful effect of of soaring over the orchestra ultimately come from the flexibility of the breath. I don't tend to think about placing my sound um, in a certain way, because for me, when I, when I try to do that, my breath stops and I suddenly Mm. have to kind of figure out then where I, where I go to find the freedom. So for, so for me, it's, it's all about how, how that breath moves. And then if the breath is free, the voice is free to go where it needs to be placed for that experience. If that makes
1: sense. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't have your technique at all. So I'll have to try to imagine that sensation, you know, (laughs) but I mean, I do think that a Mozart Strauss singer just being very, very generic here differs from a bel canto singer and that the bel canto technique, um, I'm not accusing you of not having a bel canto technique, but the bel canto singer stays on a vowel and you hear, you know, the volume increase usually by just, you know, pouring on breath but the color of the voice doesn't change. Whereas you have a weight with color, like you, the, what you're doing with your breath, it makes different light come through. And bel canto singers are more about like just the tone is always like the same, you know? But yeah, um, yeah. so I don't know if that maybe makes you, because you have that quality, sort of put you in the Mozart Strauss box, or if you've, if you've experimented with singing bel canto and you just didn't care for it.
4: Uh, you know, I I uh, I did actually experiment with a little bit of bel canto in my in my younger days. Actually, I even covered Puritani with Opera Theater of St. Louis. That was one of my hmm. uh, uh, one of my asks in my young artist training days. Uh, but you know, for me, as lovely as that that music is, you're right in that there there are some voices that that make a little more sense in it than than others, um, and and for me it wasn't quite my my personality either um those those bel canto roles um so I never really felt felt the urge to explore bel canto Hmm. Um, but I think we should give we should give space to artists and maybe open ears as well you know um so that well (laughs) I think I think we have We have these glorious recordings of these incredible singers singing these roles, right? And Mm -hmm. we cherish them. And for those of us who are lucky to be in the audience when they were singing these roles, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. But until we approach an operatic experience with with an open mind, with love for those recordings, but an open mind to maybe consider a different approach or a different sound in those pieces or a different interpretation or a different body style, you know? I think the more open-minded we are when we go into those kind of experience, the more opera comes to life for, for our audiences.
1: Um, well, speaking yeah, I'm pretty of,
4: passionate about not yes. putting <laughs> in boxes, Oliver. I,
1: <laughs> I feel that, I feel <laughs> it, trust <laughs> me. <laughs> and it is your unique brand of physicality and your vocalism that uh does make you uh, a very interesting zalome and katya Kabanova. but i think the role that has almost become your calling card for better or for worse is marta in uh, Mitsislav weinberg's the passenger and this is a very difficult opera to talk about but um you know, this is the high holy holidays right now, so mm-hmm. um, I don't forget when Holocaust rem, uh, Remembrance Day is, but I feel like it's coming up soon. Um, I don't know if you can talk to us a little bit about preparing this role and having to do it. I don't know what it takes out of you. I mean, like I just get emotional just thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, so um, please feel free to say as much or as little as you'd like to say about no, this. No, I'm,
4: hap- I'm happy to, I, to, to, to speak about it. And I think we need to, right? I think it's important to, to have these conversations about our past so that the next generation remembers and learns and explores. It's an incredible piece, The Passenger, by Weinberg. And I've had the honor of playing Marta once before at, at Lyric Opera Chicago. And we'll have the honor again um, coming up in, I believe the performances are in March uh, at Teatro Real in Madrid uh, in the same David Poutney production. And this was just an extraordinary privilege um, beyond opportunity, right, Uh, to explore a part of our shared history in humanity. Uh to connect with someone like Sophia Posmich, uh, who wrote the book The Passenger Who Survived Auschwitz. Uh, she came to Lyric Opera of Chicago and she came to every opening night of performances of The Passenger, uh, to share a little bit of her story, to connect with us, the artists who were who were performing. I remember at Lyric, I had the the privilege of wearing her number on my arm it gets me emotional too Oliver Mm. (laughs) um, to think to think back to that time and to think about the you know the intensity of this subject matter which is more than a story it's it's our truth you know there's a beautiful moment at the end of the piece uh, in which the character of Marta ages to present day and she's remembering all of these people that she um, shared the experience with uh, in the camp and she's saying the names of each of these characters but you know prisoners and speaking about how important it is to not forget I will never forget that moment when that monologue finishes the orchestra dies down, and Sir Andrew, who was Sir Andrew Davis, who was conducting that, um, held his hands up and just slowly brought them down. And there was a pause from the audience in which we had about, I, you know, if I were being honest, maybe 20, 30 seconds of silence, but it felt like an eternity up there on stage. And I just remember us all being. Kind of held in that experience, I've never felt so connected um, to an audience. Mm. It's just something that I'll hold precious to myself for the rest of my life because it's just it that's what sharing art should be all about. We get up on stage hoping to serve others with what we do, and we hope that ultimately we can bring people together to be held in an experience for a moment despite our our different backgrounds and our different stories and where we go after the opera and where we came from you know to be able to feel that in such a tangible way in such an important piece was it it's a life-changing thing really so I'm pretty excited to to perform it again with Teatro Real coming up
1: the promotional video of The Passenger from its Lyric Opera production conducted by Sir Andrew Davis. Uh, the one in Madrid will be conducted by Mirga Grazinite, Grazinite Tila, another rising star. She's just not a rising star. She's a star of classical music. So that's going to be an incredible uh, collaboration in Madrid in March. Um, just in the last few seconds I have with you, Amanda, uh, we got to turn it light. Uh, can you participate in our contest that we have about what is the best act of a Mozart opera? Figaro 2, Giovanni 1, Cozy 1. Do you want to throw Clemenza in that mix?
4: Sure. Why not?
1: <laughs> For you, what? which one, having sung all four of those operas, uh, is your favorite act of a Mozart opera? <sighs>
4: Well, I mean, it's just, a, this is an impossible question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know the cozy, it's based on who you're singing with. Cause like, as you said, it really is such an ensemble piece, but Figaro yeah. two has the best entrance. I think Mozart's I, best entrance is, you
4: know, it's genre. really true. I I think Figaro two is, is a, is a masterpiece. I mean, they all are, but, um, you know, I, can I say Giovanni two? Yeah. I Giovanni say-
1: two. You mean act two of Giovanni?
4: Act two of Giovanni. Okay. That,
1: oh, ooh. <laughs> well, it's just because it loses its verisimilitude uh, because of the, you know, the the statue coming to life and being dragged to hell. So well, it it's,
4: of, a, it's long. I, I will yeah. say that, you know, I don't, I don't. <laughs> and if it's helpful, I can say Giovanni 1. I mean, the whole thing is brilliant.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but Giovanni 2 does have uh, Mitradi, which is uh, an RAU thing so well.
0: And well uh,
4: I, I, I had two extraordinary arias for um for soprano voice in no dear also, right. you know. Um I I think to be perfectly honest, I know it's not the entire act, but there are two two moments that as a singer uh, illuminate that act for me. And it's the uh, the sextet mm-hmm. in act two, sola, sola, mm-hmm. just complete joy to sing hmm. on. And then, of course, as, as I'm sitting backstage, the trio as Giovanni is dragged down to hell.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: It's just an extraordinary piece of writing. I know you're you're talking about the act as a whole. Yeah. So if I were really going to say the act as a whole, I would say act two of, of Figaro, to be honest.
1: Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I will say the,
4: that. The way the finale is is through composed. I mean, it's just um, brilliant. Yeah. Ahead I think you
1: I think you're forgetting to uh, take into account that in Giovanni too, you have Meta Divoi, which is, I don't know why that's in there.
4: I mean, it's a little <laughs> off of side. Giovanni might argue with that, though.
1: <laughs> Amanda Majeski, thank you so much for coming to Opera Box Corps. Uh Your recital with pianist Milos Vapitsky is this Friday at Curtis Institute at 4 o'clock. If you're listening to this on Thursday, please join me there. We're done. Sorry, i
4: get to the sports question. I'm I, sorry.
1: Oh, do you oh do you want to do it? Because we can squeeze it in. I mean, I just don't want to waste your time because you I said 30 minutes.
4: Well, you know, I I teach at, at University of Michigan now, Oliver. Oh, so okay, I have good. to be a, I have to be a Wolverine. Go blue.
1: Okay, go for it. So that's so you're a Wolverines fan, but the Packers is is part of your life now that you live in Sheboygan?
4: No, no. no. It's you know, I I uh I have a lot of Packers fans surrounding me. <laughs> I'm thrilled for them. I will always be a Chicago girl, but um, you know, like I said, I, I spend half of my time in in Ann Arbor, Michigan, working working with uh, the voice students there. And so uh, I'm I'm pretty excited about the Michigan football team. If I was going to pick one,
1: so that was a big surprise to me. Not the Bears, not the Packers, but University of Michigan. What do they call the Blues? The Blues? Uh,
3: Wolverines. Wolverines. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah.
1: Yeah, shocking. Uh, I don't know what that <laughs> means for her, her family in Gurnee or her uh, neighbors in, in Sheboygan, but
3: go blue. It's,
1: it's Michigan, so there you go. It's everybody. Michigan. It's a big hand. What more can you say? You heard it here first on Opera Box. Club. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of uh,
0: football, oh, you have you have a fantasy football update. Yeah, I do have a fantasy football a football update from enemy of the show Tobias Wright, <laughs> uh, who says, "Week one, we lost a close one. We had some fellows that simply forgot how to tie their shoes and compete, and thus ended up on the wrong side of the battle." That's an update from George through Toby, or from Toby through George, I suppose. And once again, I am utterly bemused and befuddled as to how fantasy football works uh if you're not rolling a d20 i I don't know what anything that starts (laughs) with fantasy means so well well before we get to the two minute
1: drill we've got to hear ashley's opinion on the uh achilles tendon
3: Uh, speaking of bemused and befuddled you know listen (laughs) i've I've had plenty to say on this broadcast about one Karen Rogers uh, when she played for the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> now that she played for 4 whole plays for the New York Jets, um, I gotta say, this is not a shot in for a moment. This is not a time for me to rejoice. Um, I am interested that now he magically believes in science since doctors are going to heal his Achilles tendon, but I digress. Um, <laughs> it, it is a bummer. It's a big bummer for the Jets. They invested a lot of money and a lot of time in this. There's so much media behind this. I have an friend that did a commercial with Aaron Rodgers in New York to like boost all of this so it is a real bummer that there is an Achilles tear that's going to like knock him out for the season even somebody i don't like that injury is a bummer so my hope for the New York Jets is that their fandom can rally behind the other guy who is the quarterback, whose name nobody knows, but we're crossing our fingers for you, buddy.
0: <laughs> it's actually me. i'm uh, I'm filling in. It's, um, it's
3: Weston. Listen, buddy, you got this. It's gonna be great.
0: i'm I'm do my best. I you know, I I have never <laughs> been able to throw a ball in my life. I literally can't figure out how to throw a football, but you know, but you got the foam finger, so you'll be fine. So. yeah I've got... <laughs> Let's go to the two minute drill. This just is. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. Berlin Staatsoper Intendant Matthias Schulz is reiterating
1: his support for the an- for the Anna Trebko. <laughs> the a- Anna a- Trebko ahead of a- her a- a- appearance oh. in Macbeth, saying, "I can well understand the frustration on the Ukrainian side that more artists and athletes in Russia are not standing up and trying to rouse civil society. But the question is, is it okay to disinvite artists?" who have expressed themselves. The interview comes on the heels of a letter signed by 100 figureheads from the worlds of culture, politics, and academia, calling for Notrepko's performances to be canceled.
3: Cleveland Institute of Music students did a silent sit-in on Thursday to protest the drop of the Title IX investigation against conductor Carlos Calmar. You'll remember in our August reporting that the CIM Title IX committee found that the allegations against Calmar, quote, did not violate the sexual assault, sexual harassment, and sex non-discrimination policy under Title IX. CIM student government publicized but, and this is important, did not organize the sit-in as the first orchestra rehearsal of the year was happening where students wore blue and sat without instruments. Their message, according to the SGA social media posts, was that CIM foster an environment that supports all of its students.
0: The musicians of the Philadelphia Orchestra have overwhelmingly voted to reject a proposed contract from management. 85 of the musicians voted against the Philadelphia Orchestra's best and final offer, quote unquote, with two abstentions. Not a single musician voted in favor of the deal. Quote, the results of this vote send a clear message that Philadelphia's musicians stand together and will not accept anything less than a fair contract, said union rep and contrabassoonist Holly Blake. We stand together for the future of the orchestra. Robert Wilson
1: is one of this year's five laureates of the Premium Imperiale, known as the Nobel of the Arts. The Premium Imperiale honors artists in painting, sculpture, theater, cinema, music, and architecture, and grants each laureate 15 million yen. The avant-garde theater legend, Bob Wilson, helped transform the way opera is seen around the world, but he remains much better known in Europe than so in his home country. Particularly in France, where he has been entrusted, or he was entrusted with inaugurating the opera bus deal in 1989.
3: Renee Fleming is nothing if not on trend, recently revealing to the San Diego Union-Tribune that she is now a pickleball enthusiast. This is a quote. <laughs> you know, I have a very unusual lifestyle. I spent the whole day yesterday in Pittsburgh at a pickleball event because my sister-in-law has become someone who is so good at it that she tours and wins prizes. And I, f- I so feel, in now. I mean, if all the cool kids are doing it.
0: <laughs> in trade news, Anthony Freud will retire as General Director of the Lyric Opera of Chicago at the end of the season, ending a 13-year tenure with the company. Freud was contracted all the way through 2026, but he intends to return to Britain right after this season is over. Florida Grand Opera's General Director and CEO Susan T. Dannis
1: has announced her resignation. Dannis began her tenure with the company in 2012, and has produced popular traditional grand operas as well as award-winning educational and engagement programs.
3: Spoleto Festival USA has announced that Timothy Myers will be the company's new director. Myers is currently the music director at Austin Opera. Meanwhile, Boston Baroque has announced the appointment of UK native Sarah Radcliffe-Mars as its new executive director. Her tenure is set to commence on November 1st.
0: In not trade news, the Napoli Labor Court has reinstated Stefan Lissner as the artistic director and intendant of the Teatro San Carlo di Napoli. Listener had initially been let go from the position due to local regulations that prohibit anyone over the age of 70 to hold a government job. No word yet on what will happen to Carlo Fuertes, who took over Listener's old position earlier this month. On the disabled list, tenor Jonathan Tettleman has contracted COVID
1: and canceled his September 15th performance of Madama Butterfly. Rodrigo Porras Garulo took over the role of Pinkerton. We wish Tettleman a speedy recovery even though Pinkerton is a jerk.
3: (laughs) Exit stage right. Italian film and opera director Giuliano Montaldo has died at the age of 93 in Rome. Montaldo also served as the president of Italy's Rai Cinema from 1999 to 2004, and also went on to direct opera.
0: Italian soprano Margarita Rinaldi has died at the age of 88. Born in 1935, she made her operatic debut in 1958. In the title role of Lucia di Lammermoor, she sang a wide variety of roles, also for Rai, between 1963 and
3: 1975. Soprano Hilda de Groot died at the age of 77 in August. She made her debut at the Royal Opera Ghent in 1961 in Tales of Hoffman and went on to perform with the company in numerous roles.
1: And on this day, September 17th in 1605, it was the birth of composer Francesco Sacrati. More birthdays include uh, Severio Mercadante, who was born, who was baptized on this day in 1795. So he was probably born close to September 17th. In 1880, French conductor and composer D. E. Engelbrecht was born in Paris. In 1885, it was the birth of the Azerbaijani composer Uzeyir Hajibayev. In 1892, Dutch composer Hendrik Andriessen was born. In 1920, it was the birth of the Met broadcast announcer Peter Allen. In 1931, sort of a birth, it was the first uh, long-playing record to rotate at 33 and one-third revolutions per minute demonstrated by the RCA Victor Company. Tenor Pierre Duval was born this day in 1932. Italian tenor Renato Francesconi was born this day in 1934. And on September 17th, Spanish composer Miguel Gomez Martinez was born in 1949. First performances include Offenbach's La Belle Hélène in 1864, Louis Auguste Florimond Ronger's Le Cabinet Piperlin, and that quadruple decker name is simply Hervé. That's his moniker. Erbe's new <laughs> cabinet, Piper in 1897, in 1964 a bop, Gottfried von Einem's <laughs> Terzrisina, and in 1982 it was the first performance of Three Sisters Who Are Not Sisters by David Alström, not to be confused with the opera of the same name by Ned Roram, both of which are on Weston's
0: best of lists. <laughs> and that's your two-minute drill, which wasn't a two-minute drill, but it, <laughs> but it was a two-minute drill. That's a two-minute drill. i you.
1: Just a little bit of Hilda De Groot uh, from a live performance in 1977 singing Signore Ascolta. And look, everybody, as Ashley said at the top of the show, we're pushing 11 o'clock. All of us have jobs in the morning. Uh, we we beg your indulgence that there's actually a lot of news this week that needs to be discussed, especially uh, the Tannis resignation and the Anthony Freud resignation. And we want to do a better job of that for you. So we are going to discuss especially... Anthony Freud and what his tenure at Lyric Opera meant to this Chicago company on next week's show. And we'll also talk about why all these people are leaving, not just Chicago and Florida, but also recent departures in Philadelphia and Seattle.
3: I will say, you know, with all of the different like Strikes and contracts and votes. It's, it's really, you know, we were in hot girl summer. Now we're into hot labor fall because we've got the musicians at Philadelphia orchestra. We've got the ongoing strikes with writers guild and with sag united you know, auto workers went on strike effective on Friday. It's really, we are in a dawn of, of labor organization, labor collectivism, labor rights. And it's as an, a member of a union, it's, it's really delightful to see. So. You know, I'm sorry Philly didn't get a better offer, but clearly they they made their voices heard when they voted against it. So it's uh, everybody should be paying attention to unions right now.
0: Yeah, and it's so wild to me that it was so unanimous. Only two abstentions, no votes for the contract like that is hard to uh, accomplish, uh, which just goes to show how inadequate they felt the contract was. Um, so we'll see what happens, see just how final this opera is. Uh, it's a huge, huge orchestra. It's so important, you know. Uh, Yannick Nézet-Séguin is uh, is in yeah. charge, so everyone everyone's eyes are on Philadelphia, even though it's not strictly an opera company. Very important repercussions for the opera world, um, and uh, I think another uh, sort of important repercussion for the opera world is perhaps what's happening with um, Anna Trebko, unfortunately.
3: <laughs> I have, I mean, listen. Our listeners have heard me enough talk about my displeasure with her being in news and thought of and talked about. And I would love to not give her any more airspace. But I don't know. OC, what are you thinking?
1: I feel like we've we've talked about it. And, you know, I as part of my other job, I have to talk to very famous singers. I get to talk to very famous singers Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I follow them on their social medias and just see what they're doing. And I see them interacting with Anna Dutrepko and they have to do the compulsory, you know, backstage photo smiles, like great cast, like toy, 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 everybody, you know, and I see her name in there. And um, yeah, I just feels like it's something we're going to have to live with. I know people who should know better, who say that she, her voice is so unique and, you know, we can't deprive audiences of her artistry, blah, you know. Like, that's so when,
3: cute, and they are so wrong. But go ahead. Just like
1: you know, just like go for it, everybody. Just enjoy yourselves. Just have a great time with that. Like I'm, I'm not here to like block anybody from making a living. Um, and that's all I have to say about it. We are not a fan of Anna Trepko. She will never be our interview guest unless we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. But um, <laughs> it would
0: be an interesting interview. Uh, she might sue us. I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, th- I think that uh, the other big uh, other big news item for this week to kind of wrap things up here is Renee Fleming getting into pickleball. Um, that is <laughs> top headline news to me. I don't understand the current obsession with pickleball. Do either of you like get it or is it just me? I feel like George here not understanding what the kids are doing
3: it's a it's a thing. It's a thing. For people that have an interest in tennis but aren't willing to go there, pickleball can be a really nice sort of gateway drug for folks. So <laughs> there's a there's a very specific subset of my social circle that is has taken an interest in pickleball. So when I saw this news article that Renee Fleming was into it, I was like, you know, checks out. Checks out.
0: <laughs> Oliver Camacho, as the uh, as the podcast's resident tennis expert. Are you, do you feel like like tennis is in danger from the rising tide of pickleball? <laughs> I mean, it, not to say that it's not athletic. It certainly is athletic. But it's less athletic
1: and there's less running than tennis. It's more about fast hands. And I could see how people who have uh, less athletic ability could enjoy tennis. Uh, and I think getting people out, doing something, exercising, you know, being with people, all, all of it is good. And I just want to say that we're missing George right now uh, because he would have something to say about Robert Wilson. Uh, yeah. I don't think any of us anything to contribute to the Robert Wilson Award. Oh, I love uh, Robert we, Wilson. Yeah, but maybe uh, we with. can we can ask him to comment about it next week.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that about does it. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. That is how we end the show, even on this sleepy, sleepy evening without George Cedarquist in charge. Let's start with Oliver
1: Camacho. There's this great post uh, from Ken Whitman that's been making the rounds uh, on social media. Kim Whitman, the former VP of Opera at Wolf Trap. Uh, she says this, I don't know exactly where opera is going, and I'm sure that the the state-of-the-art in a few decades will be something that will surprise us all. For the sheer number of smart, expressive, committed, and exciting young artists bodes extremely well for the future of opera. To be sure, some of our institutional baggage is crumbling, and some is painfully morphing under the strain of change. But new models are emerging. New audiences are learning that our brand of storytelling is uniquely valuable. And the next generation of artists is finding the bravery and stamina it needs to catapult us forward. The next time that someone tells you opera is dead, imagine that you are with us on the annual Audition Odyssey. That almost every day for a month, you sit in the back of a large room. And every 10 minutes, a new talented singer with a story to tell walks in and gives you hope. Mm. From Kim Whitman, the Audition Queen. We've brought in
0: her content to this show many times.
3: Honestly work. Work. It sounded
0: more like a Walt Whitman quote. That was <laughs> gave me chills. Uh, Ashley Hardgrave.
3: Yeah, maybe you should have started with me and let Oliver close. Um, so <laughs> my good call is another magical intersection between music and sports. Um, the marching band for the University of Iowa, the Iowa Hockey, Hawkeyes, excuse me, they on the field this weekend honored mega basketball star, University of Iowa star Caitlin Clark. They recreated this iconic Celly play, literally with their bodies. They did as their drill charts on the field. They recreated one of the plays that she did earlier this year as Iowa was on its way to the national championship. Uh, you can find the footage on ESPN. All you need to do is Google Iowa hockey band Caitlin Clark. It is delightful. You should check it out.
0: And that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, get your voice heard, and find links to stuff we've talked about on our new and improved website, operaboxscore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on the Support the Team page. Your announcer is Norm Woodell. your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, and your audio editor is Weston Williams. <laughs> hey, that's me. For co-host Ashley Hardgrave with guest Amanda Majeski, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as Renee Fleming indoctrinates you to taste the pickle. We're back with an all-new show next week when we introduce a new segment called Swings and Misses and look back at Anthony Freud's tenure at Lyric Opera. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more tap-dancing Zalame. Join us.